The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And um, so uh, <clears throat> it's kind of uh, impactful for me to hear that this man, George, who I know has disappeared this way. And um, <clears throat> the um, and it ad- adds to two other, I guess, phone calls I received today about one person who's dying and he's also part of our community, or maybe close to dying or something like that. And maybe should be in hospice, maybe needs help, but maybe not. And someone else who also apparently, I don't remember, I don't recognize the name, but someone else who uh, uh, apparently comes to here, called from the hospital asking for support and help. And um, so in terms of the topic for the talk tonight, maybe it's kind of a nice, nice is maybe not the word, word, but appropriate introduction, because... um, there are times to t- time to time when something occurs where we feel the preciousness of people and the preciousness of life. And we somehow identify more strongly with people's circumstances. And, um, and it's, it usually does something to our hearts, to us. Sometimes it makes us uh, feel um, alarmed and afraid and angry or something. And sometimes it uh, opens us to compassion and caring for each other. And it's one of, you know, and, and held the right way, or held a certain way, it's one of the things that helps us uh, feel our common humanity and our common caring for each other. And as I understand uh, the way that Buddhist practice unfolds, certainly my practice has, un- has unfold, folded, is that uh, it's really inseparable from my connection to the people around me. And the practice I've done has helped me appreciate more and more the depth of, of uh, preciousness in that connection, the preciousness of people, the value of life. And, um, and something about uh, the nature of how it is that, for me at times, where I lose that connection and uh, don't feel it, and how I can feel disconnected from the others, and more importantly, disconnected from the caring for others, the compassion and feeling the preciousness and the love for people. And I think that uh, one of the uh, opportunities, the possibilities of a practice like this is not just you know, to get calm or to feel some more peaceful and resolved about our own issues, but rather to uh, help um, live a life that... Um, we're living a life uh, uh, for the welfare of all beings. We feel connected to all beings. We feel the importance of all beings. And so the, the topic for the talk was to talk about right action. And because on Monday nights I'm giving a series of talks now on the Eightfold Path. And now the, uh, today's the topic is called right action, which seems a little bit, um, <clears throat> maybe a little abstract. You know, right action can include almost anything. But what it specifically refers to is um, uh, the right action is that action, right here means appropriate or, or helpful or wise, that action which um, in our relationships to other people, which uh, is compassionate and supports the welfare and well-being of all beings 
and all being, including ourselves. And um, so that's kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of how it's understood, the basic element of right action. But it's part of the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is more the path of practice that leads to liberation, leads to profound peace. And so what's, I think, very significant is the way that these two are, uh, are uh, closely connected, that our caring for others, our compassionate connection to others, our concern for the welfare of all, is inseparable from our own walking the path and becoming free. That um, it's not one or the other. It's not that you can put aside your care for other people and then expect to become free yourself. In fact, if we are selfishly involved in the practice, it's all about for me, that that goes diametrically opposed to the very movement of the heart that liberation and freedom is about. And that, um, uh, so right action as part of the path is uh, usually uh, described uh, as three kinds of action, or or actually it's actually defined in the negative mostly, and that is um, avoiding, killing or harming other living beings, avoiding taking what's not given, and uh, avoiding misusing sexuality. So those three things are the, kind of the key things. And these are kind of like the big three for our social relationships. Uh, these, kind, these three things cause a tremendous amount of harm in the world. Uh, you just have to read the newspapers to get a sense of that. And um, and I, my, my you know you know three phone calls today three things today of people in distress, and um, it's you know I've I've met so many people as a teacher and heard their stories and what goes on with them that I, I'm pretty I don't know if confidence is the right word but I kind of confidently assume that a big percentage of you who are here today have had horrible things happen to you really great difficulties have happened to you. And probably they happened because someone was not doing one of those, was doing one of, you know, was doing one of those things. They were involved in actively harming. I guess you haven't been killed yet, but, you, but you know, you've been probably been harmed or hurt in physical ways. It have been um, people have taken from you what's not given in some way, and people have uh, probably been involved with some sexual misconduct, or maybe you have been involved in such a way that uh, someone. Uh, was deeply, deeply hurt by this. Uh, the level of number of people in our society who have been raped are quite dramatic. And it's not just women. I have a good friend who, uh, when he was 18, he was raped. And uh, he said that uh, when it happened, he, he knew at that moment his life had been changed forever. And so many people like that. And so to remember that this is part of our life, this is these kinds of things. Uh, I don't think that Buddhist spirituality is meant to just put a pretty face on life and just assume that everything is beautiful and wonderful and if we can just kind of meditate and live in a cloud of loving kindness and peace and, you know, just everything should be, you know, just, just a delight. <laughs> I, I think that we would be a poor people because of that if that's all it was about. I think that uh, the depth of who we are wouldn't be ex- accessed or give expression. And so the fullness of who we are. And so one of the words that's connected to ethics, or this right action, is uh, integrity. And I think, I think integrity is such a beautiful word. I, I don't know if other people feel that way. Um, it's it, a uh, more, much more beautiful word than ethics, which 
should be a beautiful word, but um, you know I don't get you know automatically excited by ethics. And when I was younger, I you know teenager and such, um, you know I had no interest in being ethical. You know, just it wasn't that I was unethical at all. I, mean, I was a pretty ethical person. Um, but uh, so it wasn't like I was problems with ethics exactly in the conventional understanding of it, of you know being ethical. But um, when people talked about being ethical, I would shut down or think that was kind of silly or kind of puritanical or something. It just wasn't a, wasn't a kind of a concept that you know that was attractive to a hippie like me. And uh, so. Um, the, uh, but the word integrity, I think, is beautiful. Maybe because you know it comes from the word you know, one, you know, to be one, to be whole, to be integral, and so this beautiful capacity we have to become whole, to heal the ways in which we're divided, heal the ways we're fragmented. Many people are f- divided against themselves. You know, there are people who are at war with different parts of themselves. They have parts that they don't like. They feel are wrong. They feel ashamed of, and so they attack it. They push it away. They argue with it. They try to recoil from it. It's quite something, the inner war, inner war that some people feel. And, um, and, uh, and you know, I, I think any time that we're unethical, we're divided from ourselves because we can't be, there's not integrity then, we're not whole. Any time that we are um, selfish, uh, oddly enough, you think someone who's selfish, all about myself, you know, that maybe you're whole, you know, it's all about you. But there's this uh, odd paradox that the more selfish you are, the less whole you are, the less complete you can be. And so to become complete is to have a, a capacity, to, part of what it means, to feel and have empathy for the wider world and to recognize what's all happening there, what's going on in the world, and to meet it and be willing to meet it and hear it. And I think it's a beautiful thing. So t- uh, someone told me a story of uh, being on retreat and he was, uh, maybe he came into the retreat little, the retreat hall, meditation hall, maybe a little bit before everybody else or some other people. And I guess he was looking and watching what people are doing or something. But he noticed this woman near him um, came to take her seat. And there was a pile, in a un- little, pile, little pile of meditation cushions, kind of in a window box kind of place. That you know seemed pretty clear to him. They were, were not claimed. It was part of the retreat center. They had extra cushions and stuff, and and but they were in a place that wasn't, they weren't usually at. So she went over there and took a cushion. So he watched her go up, take a cushion, bring it back to her seat, and sit down. And then he watched her get up, and return the cushion. And then go out uh, to the place where this retreat center had cushions. You know, like big pi- a pile of cushions in you know, shelves that you know you can you can you know you, everybody was clearly offered to everyone, everyone could take. And then she took one of those and came back with that. And he was so impressed by that integrity, the fact it wasn't obvious to her that the ones in the windowsill were freely given, were, you know, there, they might have been someone else. And so she had, so, I guess she had some doubts, and so he, she went and returned it. And, the, and uh, so that's beautiful. I think it's beautiful to have that kind of care and sensitivity. But it was also beautiful was the man who saw it was, was moved by that 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 was really meaningful to him. To say, wow, someone would have that kind of care with their integrity, with their ethics, and not to cause harm or not to take what's not given. And uh, so I don't know if it's similar, but uh, the story uh, was very meaningful for me. 
the first time I did um, a Vipassana retreat, one of these kinds of retreats that we do, was a very long retreat comparatively. It was, you know, it was 10 weeks long. And that's long enough to get your ethics in order, <laughs> somewhat. Um, it's very hard to do uh, this kind of practice here without getting your ethics in order. So you should be warned about that. So if you have no, no interest whatsoever in being ethical, and you're kind of opposed to the very idea of becoming an ethical person, this, prob- this practice is probably not for you. Because it probably this is you know, going to undermine your, your wish to be unethical. And, um, but, it, but especially if you go on a long retreat, I mean, that'll really do it in, your wish to be unethical. Because the longer you sit on retreat, the more you face yourself, the more you become integral, the more you become whole, the more you, you, know, you just can't, it's not possible. To, you know, on retreat, when you sit, it's not possible to keep the divisions, the fragmentations, to hold things at bay. It's not possible to stay selfish. Um, uh, and so, you know, kind of opens up and opens up. And so I was sitting this long retreat, and I don't know, I wasn't, I don't know how long I'd been sitting there, six weeks or something. And, um, and uh, I remembered this woman who, just before the retreat, that I had lust for. And, uh, and so I, I was thinking about her, and I just couldn't generate any lust. <laughs> And, uh, and what I felt and said, said was this kind of beautiful clarity and maybe, I don't know, pu- purity also, is, you know, hippies sometimes didn't like pure, you know, like me, didn't care for as much of the word, but kind of purity of heart, a purity of the mind, a, cl- a cleanliness, a clarity. And I, I, I certainly, I value this woman. I thought she was wonderful and appreciated her, you know, just as much as I had before. But there was something about the lust that I had for her that um, just didn't seem right anymore, just like, you know, just why, why would I pick that up? Why would I get involved in that when there was this beautiful state of mind, state of heart there that felt much more open and had much greater sense of integrity there? And, you know, it just was obvious in that state, you know, of course I wouldn't act on that. Of course I wouldn't even want to have those feelings because of uh, the contrast between how good I felt. Now, you know, if I had not gone on retreat and instead uh, lived a stressed out life, and running around, doing a lot of things, being stressed out, um, lust might have felt like a relief. And, you know, and why should I give up my lust? It's a better thing. It's all this pleasure, and I'm having a hard time, and it seems good, and, you know, whatever. You know, it's difficult in, in, in moments of stress or preoccupation, and where we don't have this integrity, it's sometimes easy not, you know, to, to operate on intentions than other times when we feel more settled and integral that we wouldn't act on. Um, so this is not a you know puritanical thing. It's not a rule-based thing. It's not saying you know don't have don't act on don't have lust as if lust is a bad thing. And no one was telling me that. It was an internal shift of feeling, in a sense, of how I felt, how I how I experienced myself, how I experienced this life, that shifted for me, and that's what told me this is I don't want to do this kind of activity. It doesn't feel right anymore. Um, so this inner and, and so that really surprised me at the time. And I was so surprised by, in this, it wasn't just with the lust, it was just the ethical uh, behavior in general, that I just felt coming out of this long retreat, this tremendous sense of ethical purity or or clear intention that I had during that retreat. Um, I wish I could tell you that it just continued beautifully after the retreat. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just, that was set for, you know. (laughs) But, um, you know, it, um, you know, the, 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 the effects of, the, of retreat kind of wear off and 
or to say it differently, maybe a nicer way, the sense of intimacy and connectedness and settledness that supports ethical life uh, kind of faded away after the retreat, and so it took a while to try to build again for me. The um, so right action or right ethical behavior is an important part of this practice, uh, the Eightfold Path, and it's as I said, it's defined by not killing, uh, not stealing, and not engaging in sexual misconduct. And some people uh, protest, you know, this is just negative, you know, this is negative spirituality, negative rules, just what you shouldn't do. And uh, they want something inspiring. And so I've known people who've tried to reword these kinds of uh, teachings to be positive. And they say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to live, but I don't want to be negative. So I'm not going to live by this idea of not killing. I'm, I'm going to be voted, voted to uh, living compassionately. Or I don't care, this thing about not taking what's not given, I'm going to live, live generously. That's what I'm going to live. And, um, but uh, it's not so clear what it means to be compassionate. It's, you know, you know, it's you know, exactly, I mean, the behavior of compassion is not so clear. The behavior of generosity is not so clear what it should be. But it's pretty clear, the behavior of not killing. <laughs> You know, I mean, you kind of generally, you know, if you you know whether you're causing, you know, you're intending harm or not, don't intend harm. You know if you're taking something that's not given. You know if you're stealing. Generally, you know, if you don't know you're stealing, you technically wouldn't be stealing in Buddhist because you have to know and have intention to steal. And um, so it's kind of clear, clear guidelines for what it is. And um, so, 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 you know, it's a clarity of it, and it, we live in a phenomenally better world if those three things were lived by, not killing, not stealing, and no sexual misconduct, I mean, we would ha- the world would just be a totally different place of that. It's a pretty, because of the tremendous impact it would have on this world, they're really profound things that we shouldn't overlook the value of it. And all, what they have, all three have in common, and what Buddhist ethics, I think, is the fundamental principle for Buddhist ethics, is um, don't cause harm. And so as, you, as we, um, and don't cause harm is not meant to be a rule, you know, like, you know, thou shalt not cause harm. But it's really meant, as a, in Buddhism, I think, as a mirror, as a pointer to a capacity inside ourselves to be integral, to be whole, to be settled, uh, to be in touch with, you know, inner purity or Buddha nature or um, empathy or wholeness or connectedness or intimacy or, you know, pure, you know, cleanliness, you know, something that's beautiful inside, inner beauty, to be connected to our inner beauty. And one of the ways that uh, I've been taught, I was taught when I was a new Buddhist student, about the precepts, things like these things, is to not take them as rule-based, but take them as guidelines that become really interesting when you're about to violate them. And so they're kind of like mindfulness bells. A mindfulness bell is a bell that rings, and when you ring, you stop and are mindful and see what's going on. So when you're about to kill someone, or about to harm someone intentionally, um, that's a really good time to stop and pay attention. If you're about to steal, that's a really good time, or, or be deceitful or fraudulent, you know, all kinds of consider, consider taking was not given, that's a really good time to stop and be mindful. And if you're about to engage in what's in any kind of basis is considered sexual misconduct, no matter whose rules, whose puritanical rules they are, if, you know, 
if it's anybody's in your neighborhood's rule, idea of what is sexual misconduct, um, uh, don't start off by protesting their fundamentalist whatever. Uh, use it as a mindfulness bell. You know, I'm about to break my neighbor's precept. You know, they, they're uptight, whatever. And, um, and um, let's use that as a mindfulness bell. I know places where they pay a lot of money to have someone ring a mindfulness bell. And uh, so I'll just use that as a, free, as a free one so that we can look and stop at our sexual behavior and understand it, look at it more deeply. And, um, and no matter how uptight and puritanical someone's sexual mores are, uh, I think everyone can spend more time looking, being mindful of their sexuality. Um, how many people do you know are, are really, really wise about sexuality, have really worked it out really well, have studied it deeply, have understand it really well, all the ins and outs of sexual, sexual behavior? And you know a lot of people like that? We have a society, we have like national heroes, you know, <laughs> that are like the sexually wise beings, you know, you know, have gone through the ringer and we all hold them up with great esteem. I mean, we should have people like that, right? Because, I mean, what, can be, what is more central to being a human being, most human beings, to have some relationship to sexuality? Even asexual people have a relationship to sexuality that's important for them. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing amount of time and behavior that people spend around thinking about and acting on and doing things having to do with sexuality. And, um, you know, People spend more time, I suspect that people spend more time focusing on what they're addressing, you know, based on, you know, some kind of sexual interest or attraction or something than probably almost any other reason for how we dress, except maybe comfort. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and so anyway, it's a big thing, I think, right? So shouldn't we have national heroes? Shouldn't we have people as a society recognize people who've kind of gone through the ringer and really understood it really well and, and we can go, go sit at their feet and say, you know, how, can you tell us about you know, how this works and how to be wise? And, but rather we have pop stars and we have Lady Gaga and we have you know, sports stars and people like that who are our cultural heroes. And um, so I don't know. So the idea that of using any kind of reminder to stop and look and question what our sexuality, sexual behavior, interests, desires are, and look at it more deeply. It's my assumption that sexual activity and sexual attraction between people, uh, sexual behavior, is probably the most complex form of social communication and interaction and relationship that exists for human beings. It probably has more layers of, uh, more, more elements, more uh, aspects of our psychology come into play than probably any other thing. It's probably, I think any, pretty much any sexual relationship is multi, multi, multi-dimensional what's going on in that relationship, in that sexual behavior. It's not like just go for the pleasure, or it's not just go for gratification. It's not just for uh, let's express my love. Uh, you know, it's a lot, a lot of things. And so I think it's a really rich area to stop and be mindful for. So this idea that uh, these precepts, and now the, the usual definition of the right action is the first three precepts, is, uh, uh, not, again, not to take them as hard and fast rules, though sometimes it's very useful to do that, but rather to take them as mindfulness bells to stop and look. What am I about to, what, what am I about to do? 
And is it possible that in my intention to violate one of these precepts, is it possible that I'm hurting some, going to hurt someone? Is it possible that I've lost touch with some place inside of me that I want to live from? Do we know some place inside of me that's, that's that, that valuable that you really want to live from that place? Not values, like the value of not killing as a value, but the, the clarity and the purity of heart that is a kind of feeling place that if you live from that feeling place, of course you wouldn't harm someone. Of course you wouldn't want to harm someone because it's, you know, just that's not possible in that place. In um, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, it's uh, said that someone who attains to the first level of spiritual maturity in Buddhism, called stream entry, that after that they're incapable of breaking the precepts. They're incapable of intentionally killing someone, stealing, lying, engaging in sexual misconduct, and um, intoxicating themselves. And that's a pretty powerful statement when we know that so many people in our society struggle with these issues. You know, there are, it's some people really wrestle, or, uh, struggle. Sometimes when they struggle, they kind of succumb to these powerful, powerful temptations that cause them to violate, uh, you know, to break these precepts. And to come to a place, a kind of transformative place, where you can no longer cross that line. Um, again, not because of a rule, because of some inner feeling, inner place, integrity that just can't be crossed, is a, quite a remarkable capacity that human beings have to get to that place. So to, when I was thinking of coming down here, thinking about giving this talk, um, I wanted to say something, make the talk really simple. Because it was, I thought, this is a really profound topic. And so it's so profound that only, it really deserves a simple, something simple. If it's not simple, then it's not profound enough. And, and I got, got astray with the announcement, and it became kind of a, for me, it became kind of a extemporaneous reflection. It wasn't what I intended. But um, so the simple thing that I wanted to try to say is that um, I guess would be two things. One is that um, you cannot become free yourself if you are involved in intentional harm for, on others. If your behavior in some way or other is causing harm for others, um, you can't become free yourself. That's the one simple thing. So to the degree to the, to becoming fr uh, free, liberated, is motivation, you should keep that in mind. The other is that uh, if you do things selfishly, you can also not become free. And the connection is that I believe one of the primary motivations or one of the primary elements involved in breaking the precepts, cause, doing things that cause harm to others, is, is selfishness. Just thinking about yourself and your own needs, your own desires, your own, you know, thing. And, um, and so it's not, it's, it's not possible to become free if we're selfish. And so the ways in which Buddhist practice focuses on ourselves a lot, it's focusing on ourselves in such a way that um, uh, it's meant to free us from selfishness, free us from that contraction and holding that that entails. Okay.
so that's what I had to say. And we have 10 minutes. So this is, again, I think this is a very important topic. And, um, and it always makes me, uh, I always very much appreciate when people grapple with these issues in their lives. I don't have simple answers sometimes to how people grapple and how important this is for people. But it means a lot to me that people are really interested in this. Sometimes people come to me and say, you know, I have termites in my house. What do I do? And I don't want to tell them what to do. Because, you know, the question for Buddhists would be, well, should I kill them, right? And I don't want to say what they should do. But I, I really appreciate that people are asking those questions. That, to me, is meaningful, that they have that sensitivity that prompts them to, to question rather than, you know, automatically killing the termites. So if anybody have any, any topics, yes, please. See if you can, Barbara, can you bring that over there, the mic? There, the Nirali there. Can you raise your hand? Hi. <clears throat> Thank you so much for the talk. Um, so you said that there are two things to be considered about is not to overtly be harmful to others. And the second is to not be selfish. If now, you want to be free. Yeah, if you, <laughs> assuming you want to be free. Um, so I grapple with the second one quite a bit. Um, and since a few years. Just like the precepts thing. So I love to hear that someone's grappling with that. That makes me happy. <laughs> And since a few years, be, to be, be honest... It can be painful, it can be difficult, I know. But I'm very happy to hear it because it's, it's so epidemic, selfishness. And so to hear someone has the interest and the motivation to grapple with it, it's really great. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, so the question is, like, one aspect of it that I also think about is self-compassion. And like, just as I don't want to be selfish, I also don't want to be selfless to an extent where I'm violent to myself. Yeah, of course. That's not, that's not good either. So to find that discernment between not being selfish and yet being kind to oneself uh, has often, and in, in several like situation, real situations of my life, that has been a question that has come up. And I'm not sure if I've been able to behave in a <laughs> mature or mindful way. So, I don't know, I hope there's like some technique or some clear answer around this, or, or I don't know. Uh, yeah, the answer. <laughs> the answer, I wish I had an answer. I think that, um, you know, my understanding so far, my limited understanding of people and myself is that it's really great to be on the path. It's really wonderful to have that interest to practice and try to work with these things. And the, the, sometimes there are no easy answers, and, or there, are an e there is an easy answer, but we don't know what it is in this circumstance. And so we do our best we can, and then we try to learn from that. And so I think what's the refuge is knowing your in basic intention. What are the values, the intention? What are you trying to do? And when you don't know what the right approach is, then just fall back and, and ask, what is your intention? What are you what's most important that you want to come from? What's values or what's, what's the guide, guideline that you have for trying to find an answer? And in terms of the right action, one of the guidelines the Buddha gave is to be concerned for the welfare of all. Of all. 
and uh, and uh, you know, in, in more modern English, I think some people say the greater good, and the the welfare of all uh, includes yourself. We don't want to leave ourselves out. So, what is good for the, for everyone? What's the greater good for the whole thing? And if you kind of come back, that's really what I'm looking for. I don't know how to do it. I have other motivations going on, but take refuge in that, and then try. And then we try to find our way, and you know, it's not easy in some circumstances to find that way. The um, but both with selfishness and unhealthy selflessness, uh, if, you, if, if you're, if you're uh, doing mindfulness practice where you turn and really are mindful inside, internally, for your, what's going on in your body, your mind, and the heart, really pay attention carefully, deeply. Kind of get, by the, get behind the concepts you have you're trying to live by to what it actually feels like to be selfish, what it actually feels like to be self-effacing this kind of way or, you know, you, both circumstances, you probably find feel that something is off. So, if you're being uh, uh, selfless in an inappropriate way, then if you have that inner sensitivity that comes from mindfulness, you'll feel that it's off. Something's wrong here, and that becomes a guideline. Oh, or if it feels right, you'll feel that it's right. Sometimes being selfless is right, and it feels that way. And so, I found over and over again that the the um, the, the tuning into my inner life, tuning into my body, my, my emotions, my mind, my thoughts, is a great guideline. It teaches me, the felt sense of it all teaches me when something is off and when something isn't. Does that make some sense? Yeah, definitely helps. Okay, thank you. My question is really similar, but it's opposite in the sense that, um, yeah, often I have the problem that I'm too selfless, and so, um, you know, maybe sometimes I will want to help someone who actually is hurting me, or um, I had this friend who was like always coming to me, you know, when she was sad, and then one time I was sad, and so she said, "How are you?" "Oh, I'm sad." I said, and she said, "Oh, I'm sad too," and then she started talking about how sad she was. <laughs> And, and then um, after I had to force myself to um, not talk to her because I, I was really in a bad moment in my life and I needed all the energy you know, that I could, um, that I had. And so, and I felt so guilty. So maybe my compass is a little off because when I take care of myself, um, I feel such a big guilt about you know, taking care of myself, especially when that hurts others because you know, she was you know, trying to contact me because she was so sad. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to keep listening to her when I was struggling so much. Yeah. But I felt really guilty about it. So I don't know if you have an answer. <laughs> so guilt. So what wisdom do you have about, about guilt? Do you have any wisdom about it? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well... Usually, I use it as a compass. If I feel guilty, I must be doing something wrong. Oh, so you believe? So, you, so what, part of the what? You, you, so you believe your guilt? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's and, what, and 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 where where did you learn to give your guilt so much authority? Um, I think you know I was raised in Italy, where people um, are more about like we're all kind of self-effacing and worrying about other people more. But they kind of worked you haven't, out. You, really? You never drove in Italy. <laughs> I never drove in Italy at all. That's really true. I don't know. 
so, but so, the way I was raised, maybe also, you know, I was raised Catholic. It's all about turning the other cheek. So, so, so some, I know sometimes it, uh, mm-hmm. something about Catholicism where it lends itself for people. Sometimes people from Catholicism get the, somehow imbue this idea to give their guilt a lot of authority. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of that? <coughs> all that authority you give it. That, that like, I, I mean, now I feel better, like my life has become better since I started, you know, um, avoiding people who harm me, I guess. But at the same time, I still feel guilty about, because I don't know, I still have this instinct that if someone is sad and I know about it, I should help, even mm. though they wouldn't help me in the same situation. Yeah, so, so what, I like, what I'm trying to do is to suggest to you is maybe you could uh, 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 question the beliefs that are behind that, the, the belief that it's wrong to take care of yourself. And that in doing that, you know, someone, someone maybe needs help, but, but to help them and they somehow turn it around so you feel worse afterwards, mm-hmm. um, is that really for the greater good? And, uh, you know, and so, you know, I think the Buddhist analysis often is to look at the greater good and have that be the standard as opposed to a simplistic idea of self and other and, you know, who's to benefit the most. Because you're important too. And sometimes people who have um, uh, a lot of guilt sometimes have a certain kind of conceit that they're not important. And yeah, that's really wise words. <laughs> it isn't, isn't that very interesting to have that in one sentence, the conceit that you're not important? So, um, so you have a lot of interesting things to grapple with, you know. <laughs> and, and they're... And they're and they're really good things to grapple with. You, you, have, you have really good partners. And, you know, whereas I said earlier, you know, someday we'll have these, you know, great wise sage, sages of sexuality and we'll look up to them. I think someday we'll have these great wise sages of guilt. And you'll be one of those great sages and we'll go to you and we'll bow to you. Wow, you, you're, you've understood. You know, you really saw the, to the depth of guilt and seen it through and through and it won't bother you anymore. And then we'll all come and study with you. It's, it's worthwhile. I would do it. Spend time. Look deeply. Okay, so thank you. And, uh, and so if any of you, I don't know if you want to talk to Michelle about George, uh, if anybody, especially if any of you are in the south, you know, down south. Can you give us a little description of George, like what he looks like? And does he have any medical <coughs> history that you know? He's 74 years old. He has white curly hair. So you can talk to Michelle afterwards if you'd like somehow to go down there and visit the park or put yourself on a list of people in case there's something else that we can do. I don't know what we can do, but you know, it'd be nice if our community could help. So anyway, so thank you all very much for tonight. <laughs>